Jeremy Long is a principal engineer specializing in securing the SDLC. Jeremy is the founder and project lead for the OWASP Dependency Check Project, a software composition analysis tool that identifies known vulnerable third-party libraries. Jeremy joins us to share the origin story of Dependency Check. He'll cover the problems that Dependency Check solves, how many organizations actually use it, and how you can integrate it into your own company. Plus, he'll get into what the future holds for Dependency Check. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Long. You cannot hack yourself secure. Everyone wants to focus on the offensive side of the equation. The challenge is that developers get bored with hacking broken pieces of code after a while. Sure, it's a shiny, cool new thing in the beginning, but how about one year later? At Security Journey, we focus on long-term, sustainable security culture with the developers as defenders. Our approach integrates experimentation together with learning. We believe that developers need hands-on experience, but not at the expense of fundamental knowledge. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo or schedule a demo. Jeremy Long is a principal engineer specializing in securing the SDLC. Jeremy is the founder and project lead for the OWASP Dependency Check Project, a software composition analysis tool that identifies known vulnerable third-party libraries. Jeremy joins us to share the origin story of Dependency Check. He'll cover the problems that Dependency Check solves, how many organizations actually use it, and how you can integrate it into your own company. Plus, he'll get into what the future holds for Dependency Check. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Long. Hey, folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and also co-host of this podcast. And I'm also joined by Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Chris. Yeah, good to be here. Robert Hurlbut, uh, Threat Modeling Architect. All right. Well, the topic we have for today is something I feel like we've talked about quite a bit, but we're going to get very specialized in understanding an OWASP project that's that's plays in this whole software composition analysis space. And so we're joined today by Jeremy Long. And Jeremy, we're going to dive right in as our listeners expect and have you tell us your security origin story. Excellent. So... I started in security uh, probably back in about 2000, 2001 timeframe. I was out in Seattle. I was working for a, uh, for a company that completely folded, went out of business. And at the time, I was a fairly junior programmer and could not find a job because this was right during the uh, dot-com bust out in Seattle. And you know, senior programmers were taking all the junior-level programming jobs. So I was lucky enough that my brother was actually working for a company in Minneapolis. They called me up and said, hey, we have to do a security code review of a 2 million line C, C++ application. Uh, and we're, we just need to find bodies that we can throw at this. And I was like, well, I can totally read C, C++, no big deal. But I don't really know a whole lot about security. And he's like, don't worry. We'll, we'll send you a white paper to read on the plane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So they they flew me out to Minneapolis and there were 10 guys in a room uh, doing at the time a manual code review of this application because there weren't really a lot of security audit tools out there. And that's really where I got my start in on this. And what's funny is at the end of that 10 days, we had the, the, or 
two weeks. We had the 10 guys reviewing code. I was one of two people that actually found something. And I found the reason the developers had to reboot their server every three days because they had an inconsistent view of what 1K meant. So, you know, one developer's copying between buffers at 1,000 bytes and the other one's copying at 1,024. And so they're getting these little memory corruption every once in a while. For, for large strings. That was like one of the only two things that was identified. And again, that's a trivial fix for the for the company that we identified that for. It's a set inline replace, 1,000 to 1,024. I mean, it's not quite that simple. You had to do a lot of regression testing, but to fix it, it's not that difficult. Um, but that was kind of my intro to security. And then I got hired onto a team to do manual code review. And I know it sounds exciting to do manual code review. I did that for about nine years. <laughs> you would be amazed at what you learn reading other people's code. The first couple of years, yes, it was all manual, but then we built, bought tools, etc. And it was really uh, fun and interesting to be one of those guys that I'm like, hey, I'm solving this problem manually uh, by, by reading the code. How do I never have to read the code again for this vulnerability? And you'd write a tool, write a rule, do something to automate it so that you never had to find it again. And so that's been a lot of my career in security is figuring out how to automate things. All right. So you said you did manual code review for nine years. What is the funniest thing you've ever seen in a comment? Oh, in a comment? Swearing in French? Uh, (laughs) 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 uh, but you know, you just see some, some really ridiculous things, sometimes not even in comments, you know, you'd, you'd find code where it said, um, you know, encrypt password, something like that. And, you know, return a string, you know, take a string, return a string. You look at the body of the method and it was just return string. (laughs) (laughs) What are you, what what are you doing? (laughs) We're encrypting, you know, (laughs) Route 26, it, de- it decrypts pretty quick. <laughs> well, good for performance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So automation being something that uh, kind of something that you, you've seen the real use for kind of makes sense for where you've landed in the OWASP universe here. And so you're, one of, you're the project lead, right, for dependency check? Correct, yes. Okay, so we're gonna go go off the script a little bit here, and normally we just you know we're talking about your security origin story. I'm curious about dependency checks origin story. <laughs> when did this project start? Why did it start? Tell us kind of the the backstory behind dependency check. Uh, so this is something again at my at my day job. It was something that I was doing manually back in probably 2009, 2010, 2011, where we'd go out and search for things at the NVD, um, Secunia, et cetera, all of the um, places that you could go online and search for vulnerabilities in struts and things like that. Um, There were no tools on this at all, but these were issues that we had been citing. And in sometime in 2011, I kind of came up with a harebrained idea that I could automate this. And I actually started, you know, writing the code for it. And I, you know, took it to my management chain and said, this, this kind of seems to be working. I I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's better than what we're doing. 
right now because if it finds something, we don't even have to do any more manual searching. And uh, I want to open source it because I don't think it's uh, it's something that we wanted to keep internal just to us because uh, I, th- I thought it was a solution that would benefit from contributions from other people. And it absolutely has. Had we kept it internal, it probably would not be even close to where it is today. So I took it to my management chain, had to talk to a whole lot of people to get agreement to open source this. And in 2012, uh, I was able to release the first version of Dependency Check. And and I'm sorry to people who used it. That first version was a little rough. <laughs> but we have improved a ton over the years. Um, I, I, I still remember like one of my first uh, meetings where I actually demoed this to people. And man, it is it is a tough crowd when you're introducing something brand new to the industry. Because when I open sourced this, there was one, I believe there was one commercial product on the market uh, from Codenomicon, uh, who I believe is now owned, I believe by Synopsys. Um, and uh, the first paper by Jeff Williams um, and Arshan uh, came out called uh, The Unfortunate Realities of Insecure Libraries. Uh, that was a paper they did in conjunction with Sonatype to kind of highlight this problem. And and my tool came sh- came out shortly after their paper. Uh, so it was kind of like really good timing on that. And then the market exploded <laughs> over the next, you know, five, six. It's still uh, going with, with the amount of people trying to deal with the software composition analysis problem and keeping things up to date. So when we think about dependency check, what is it actually doing? <laughs> Under the hood, fuzzy matching. <laughs> in all honesty, that's that's under the hood what it's doing, um, and 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 I've talked about this in some of the talks I've given about uh, dependency check. One of the problems that we have in security, is, or the differences between developers and and security, is developers will call a library, you know, uh, by their Maven coordinates or so, or something along those lines. Um, so like dependency check would be. Uh, have a group of org.owasp and the artifact ID would be dependency-check-core uh, and then there would be a version number. You know, I just released uh, 5.3.0. Uh, actually, yesterday I just released uh, a new version of dependency check with a lot of improvements. Um, but when you get into security, security is a lot about pointing fingers and blaming the vendor. And so we might have a vendor name in there instead of a group ID. And sometimes the vendor name is in the group ID. So like the Maven coordinates, it lines up pretty well. And in other cases, not even remotely close. Spring source, uh, uh, the spring framework is currently owned by Pivotal. There is no mention of Pivotal in the group artifact uh, designation for the spring framework. And yet, if you go out into the NVD, you'll actually find uh, Pivotal, Pivotal Software, uh, Spring Framework, VMware Spring Framework, and Spring Framework all are identifiers for different vulnerabilities that have occurred in the Spring Framework over the years. (laughs) So how do we match what the developer coordinates are to what security is saying about this? Um, And so I built a tool uh, to do what I call evidence-based identification of these libraries to get to figure out what that um, what security is calling this library because all I have are the developer 
coordinates and uh, the developer coordinates. And I also grab as much textual information as I can from the dependencies, uh, from the build system, from the dependencies, any information that I can gather. Um, be it you know package names, uh, entries from the from a manifest. Uh, if we're doing .NET, we actually look at the extended property files of the DLLs um, or assemblies, and uh, we collect all this information. We put it into vendor product and version number evidence collections, and that's kind of a ranked on high confidence to low confidence evidence, uh, depending on where we got the information from, and we use that information to uh, query a leucine index. I use leucine in a very interesting way. Leucine is one of those projects where you can index the Library of Congress and do very fast searches against this. I'm using um, the leucine engine to index two fields, uh, vendor and product, from the uh, common platform enumerations that are used within the uh, NVD data. Um, common platform enumeration is how security identifies a piece of software. And so I have a Lucene index with some, you know, it's got some specialized uh, things that we've done to make the um, searches work out really well. But we use all this evidence that we collected and we search against the Lucene index. That's why I just say it's, you know, we're basically just doing some fuzzy matching to, you know, match the between these two identifiers. And this works out we, what we found is this works out really, really well. And that's why dependency check is I've, I've been able to maintain it and keep it going because I'm okay maintaining code. I like code. Um, if I had to maintain a database of developer GAV to, uh, to CPEs, uh, I wouldn't be doing that job very long. That, that's boring. And so I built a tool to kind of help do that matching for me. And the other thing that that does is as products change owners um, over time, which we've seen with, again, like I always point out Spring, it was Spring Source, then VMware Spring Source, and now Pivotal. Um, my tool actually does the fuzzy matching, and it actually has been able to track that over time on some of these products. And so it, after the tool runs, it, it gathers this evidence, puts it all together into an index that it can search at a very high rate of speed. And then if it finds a vulnerability, it basically reports on that to say, hey, you've got a vulnerable component that's included inside of your build. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's We do the identification layer to map from the uh, from the library to the common platform enumeration. And then we look use that common platform enumeration to look up all of the data, uh, all of the vulnerabilities within the National Vulnerability Database. Uh, in, in some recent versions, we've actually done more than just the NVD. Uh, we've actually uh, had contributions from Sonatype. Um, they've donated an OSS index client uh, and helped build that integration out. So we're not solely relying on the NVD anymore. We now have the OSS index. Um, we've got the NVD, of course. We're also using uh, wrapping some other tools, uh, such as RetireJS. And we also, for Node projects, we are also going out to the Node audit APIs and pulling down Node vulnerabilities. But at its core, the original was this um, mapping within the NVD and looking up these vulnerabilities. We've expanded that to wrap other tools uh, for other technologies. We also do bundler wrap bundler audit and get the results from that. And what this allows is us to get a consolidated format for a lot of tools into just a single dependency check format. And it 
really helps for some of the multi-language projects that you might have um, where, you know, there might be information from retire.js and bundler audit. And so if you've got a Ruby application with JavaScript, you know, your bundler audit may not see some of the JavaScript vulnerabilities so, and you'd have to run multiple tools. Dependency check has been, we've been kind of consolidating things and we're even looking at a couple other ways that we might be able to bring in other tools because these very specialized language tools are awesome. They're doing great work, but you know, sometimes you need a common format for a lot to be able to use and build reporting, et cetera, off of. Where does this, where does dependency check break down? And what would you say is the accuracy of this tool percentage wise? Percentage wise, I don't, I honestly, <laughs> this is one that uh, I think a lot of people are going to be shocked at. Um, I haven't used dependency check professionally for ooh, many, many, many years. <laughs> uh, probably, yeah, it's been five, six years, at least since I haven't used the thing professionally. And I've continued to maintain it because I get such positive feedback from people on this. Um, I know it does really, really well on Java, especially if you integrate it into the build um, and you're using like the Maven plugin or the Gradle plugin or even the SBT plugin, which is a, you know, being maintained by another individual. Um, and and it does really, really well on, on Java. Probably the next best one it does uh, a, an okay job on is, is .NET assemblies. Um, and then when we get into things like uh, bundler audit uh, for Ruby, it's, well, it's just wrapping bundler audit. So it's on par there with bundler audit. Um, where dependency check right now falls down that I, the one that I know that it falls down on is um, mobile. It does not do a very good job with mobile. Um, well, especially uh, on the iOS side, probably does a little bit better on the Android side. But uh, that's one that I have had reports uh, back uh, from peers in the industry have said, have kind of let me know that it doesn't work very well on mobile. And that may be uh, one of the opportunities that we have in the future to try and work to improve it. Because for each different technology stack that we have been trying to support, uh, I, I need to get a lot of projects to kind of help tune the analysis and make it better. Uh, I said recently the 5.3 uh 5.3.0 that I released yesterday actually has a lot of improvements for Node at the moment. Um, we actually uh, did a lot of things to fix a lot of the bugs that people were having, but also the combination of the OSS index and the Node Audit API. We also introduced uh, just straight looking up vulnerabilities from the NVD. And what I found doing that is we actually got higher fidelity results than like we were finding vulnerabilities that weren't necessarily reported by NPM audit. We, we had a couple that, that were reported by the OSS index or and, and we were able to get, even for the ones that were reported by NPM audit, uh, one of the things that they have is they have some what they call unscored vulnerabilities where they might have like a zero <laughs> as the score uh, because it, it, generally those are like on low type findings um, from NPM audit. Whereas if you went out to the NVD, you actually have the CVSS version three score. And so it might be like a 2.3. So we're, we're able to combine the data sources to improve the analysis. So, I mean, that's, that's really key there. So I just need time and energy on all of these things to improve each language or each technology stack language. And I think mobile is probably on the roadmap of things that I'm going to try and help out with in the future, in the near future. Yeah. And this is a good reminder of, 
kind of how OWASP works <laughs> for those people that don't realize. I mean, Jeremy is not getting paid or there's no real benefit, financial benefits. You're doing this right because you want to just make the world a better place, a more secure place. 100%. Yeah. It's, uh, I've been, you know, people who find out like how much of my time I spend coding this thing to just to try and promote and, and help the industry. Uh, there's been many years where between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. I'm at Starbucks coding. And that's just because if I'm putting something out there like dependency check for people to use, I want it to be the best product I can make it. And it's not just something I'm posting some code out on GitHub, doing a talk on it and going home. And if anybody wants to use that code, good luck. I'm I'm really trying to make it the best that, that we can. I, when we interviewed Steve Springett, the one of the project leads from Dependency Track, uh, I, I told him the same thing I'm going to say right now. I said, between you and Jeremy, like you got you guys have a couple of projects here that rival what a lot of commercial products are providing, and yet both of you have put those projects forth into open source and you're not making any money or anything on something that you really could have. And so I think that's just such a cool thing that you're doing though, is that you want to, you want to make the world a better place, a more secure place. And your folks that are really putting your money where your mouth is, even though there's no money really behind this. What I, what I've told so many people during talks, I mean, dependency check, it's free. Use it. If you're not doing anything else, use it. And you know what? When you're using it, you can use it to make the case to buy a commercial tool because not every organization um, really wants to put something like this into the pipeline or, I mean, depending on size, culture, everything else, uh, they're going to want commercial support. I don't know of any company providing commercial support for dependency check. I know I'm not. <laughs> so uh, I don't know of anything out there like that. And so that's one of the reasons uh, a lot of companies go to some of these other vendors. And the other key is most of the other vendors in, you know, the commercial vendors in this space have private databases of vulnerabilities. They know that Prime Faces had a, uh, you know, a, a, a deser I believe it was a remote code execution. It was, I believe it was something like a deserialization. And they knew about this for a long time in their private databases. Um, Actually, I love the story about Prime Faces. It's one of my absolute favorite um, vulnerabilities that came out. It was early 2018, I believe this came out. Uh, there was a deserialization attack. Uh, it was published into the NVD, like I said, early 2018. Um, and it was like critical, like pe people like a month later, you were seeing blog posts about, hey, my, web my, my website just got popped and I have a coin miner on my site now. Uh, what's up? And it, it was all due to this vulnerability. Guess when the patch came out? I'm going to guess middle to late 2018. Actually, I think it was two years prior to the CVE being reported. Hmm. It was clearly spelled out in a GitHub issue on the Prime Faces repo and nobody upgraded. And this goes back to one of the, uh, um, I always forget, is it called Snick or Sneak? Um, I, I still don't know how to pronounce it. I just I just say it quickly so that people think I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that That's where, like, when we're saying why some of the people might want to go with a commercial solution, 
is they have the private databases that actually had that vulnerability in it prior to it being in the NVD. Um, there's a huge gap between what's in the NVD and what's actually known in you know open source repos like GitHub. Um, and that actually gets to one of my talks that I'd given um, at uh, LocomocoSec, uh, I believe in 2017, I, I lose track uh, of, of this exactly. Um, but it was called the automated or the application patching manifesto, where I basically am saying that a lot of the stuff that we're doing in software composition analysis today is compliance. It's a checkbox. Um, there have been a lot of massive breaches because of uh, failures in the software composition analysis where we aren't patching. When we do patch or when we are requiring our, our app teams to patch, it is generally a nightmare because this is not something that is part of most teams' day-to-day -day jobs. I mean, you put a library in there and, you know, it may be there five years later. Same library because it's not broken. We're not seeing any regressions. <laughs> And that's actually quite common where you see very old libraries and where, where I've been trying to get people to move is that we just need to do continual patching of our libraries, make it part of the SDLC. Uh, there's, there's amazing tools out there. Actually, GitHub bought my favorite uh, tool in the market. It's called Dependabot. So GitHub actually bought this and, and has actually been incorporating the technology into the GitHub platform itself. But basically what Dependabot does is if a new version of a library comes out, you get a pull request. Your CI kicks off, light is green, you can merge the pull request. Now, of course, that all depends on if you have a good CI suite, uh, test suite. So you really have to have you know quality test cases, et cetera, to, to really ensure that you're not gonna have a regression from upgrading. But if you make upgrading just part of your life cycle like that, you're not going to have a problem because you know how to patch. It's part of what you do as your day job. Anything that fails in your CI goes on your backlog and you can work it in to upgrade that library. And if you do things like this, you won't run into issues like we saw with Prime Faces because the upgrade had been out for two years already. The patch was available. You could have upgraded. Um, and, and had you been keeping everything up to date instead of incurring technical debt, well, that's why I say a lot of what we're doing right now is compliance work as opposed to real security. Um, and I think uh, what GitHub and some of the other vendors in this space are doing is really going to be driving the industry forward a lot to make us more secure. So do you think that's the future of SCA then, that we're going to end up with, you know, Dependabot just doing these upgrades for us behind the scenes without us ever having to do anything? Or is there still a market for a dependency check with Dependabot? Uh, I think there is still a market um, because one of the things like uh, the, the, the landscape, it, it's always complicated. And there will be times where you can't upgrade a library because of technical reasons. Um, you're depending on a feature that went away or something like that. You still need to know that the vulnerability is there. Uh, also, when with some of these automated solutions, this is only working on your primary dependencies. Um, when you look at a, a real application, it actually has a hierarchy of transitive dependencies, which are dependencies of your dependencies. And that's why you can get a very large um, set of uh, dependencies for any application is because you might use one dependency and that uses 10 more. And depending on what you're using, that can fork out fairly large um, and depending on how much you have. And, and so things like Dependabot aren't really focusing on your transitive dependencies. 
Um, at least not yet. They, they, there, there is opportunity there. Um, but the other issue is, and I, and I did recognize this when I did my talk, and I do always try to point this out, keeping up to date to be the latest and greatest also introduces a supply chain risk. We've seen this in the Node uh, JS space, uh, and the NPM team has been doing a really great job trying to close some of these holes that have occurred in the past. Um, you know, like ESLint, uh, if you, if you know what happened there, um, a uh, I believe it was a uh, dependency like way down in the chain of ESLint got um, compromised and and. Uh, and ESLint, when you downloaded the latest version, had malware, I believe, was being distributed. I believe that's what happened with ESLint, um, where where you just ended up with getting malware on your build systems <laughs> just because you brought in the latest version of something. Uh, so th- th- there's been a lot of interesting work in how do you know your, your build system is secure? How do you know your supply chain is secure? Uh, I know Mark Kerfee has been doing a lot of work there. He's he's built some tools to do, uh, you know, sandboxing of your build system. You know, sandbox your, your you know your Jenkins and monitor what files have changed. Monitor what uh, URLs people have been connecting out to. So just while while it's great to be keeping up to date, you do have to recognize that there might be a risk that if your supply chain is compromised in any way, shape, or form, and you're dealing with open source. You do have you do run the risk of of bringing in something that somebody had maliciously uh, uh, brought in, and that's why I know some people actually talk about bring uh, bring your own binaries. You know, pull pull the version from uh, the version of the source code from GitHub, build it yourself, use the one that you built, because even with everything else going on out there, there's no guarantee that what's in the public repos is was actually built from the source code that is published. And that only gets you halfway though, right? In the supply chain problem. Right. If somebody introduces a vulnerability on purpose into the library source them- itself, you know, I think a supply chain risk is really two different. There's a lot of risks involved in, in, in the supply chain with this, but one of the bigger, I mean, that, that, that gets the targeted attacks. Unfortunately, uh, we have to, deal with the uh, uh, this almost the script kitty level attacks because that's where you know the strut CVE comes out deserialization attack everybody better patch <laughs> and upgrade um, struts because you're gonna have bots spamming the internet with that exploit that that's another that that actually brings up another question I mean like do all application are all application vulnerabilities equal not in the slightest I mean yeah you can look at the CVE score. And that's only part of the picture. If you got to exploit DB and there's a script there, you better elevate your uh, your, your risk around that because uh, it's now script kitty. It's not it's not just somebody hey published a vulnerability. Maybe they have a private um, exploit that they've used. If it's out on like exploit DB, even some of your lower risk findings might become a little bit more concerning because it's script kitty level attack at that point. So I want to just come back around to the integration question, but I guess first, how many how many organizations that you're aware of, or, or from a download count perspective, how popular is dependency check? Well, actually, uh, <laughs> I just pulled up my Maven statistics on this. Um, let's see, it, it looks like uh, last month uh, the core dependency check library was downloaded 
187,000 times. Um, I know the Docker container has about uh, over 100,000 pulls. Uh, they don't really count above that, at least I haven't seen. And the, the Gradle plugin uh, counts for a large swath of that. It used to be more on the Maven side, but Gradle has really been taking over um, on the on the downloads from Central. Are you able to keep track of uh, organizations or .com, .edu, and so <laughs> forth? Or At any, no, any? no data actually comes back to dependency check from the use of it. Okay. Um, the the only thing that happens is that we is that the tool itself pulls data down from uh, the NVD. Uh, it may reach out to the OSS index. Uh, uh, it pulls data uh, data file down from GitHub, uh, and it uses the npm audit APIs. So uh, no data actually comes back to us about the actual usage. I mean, anecdotally, I know some very large companies. Uh, have have been using this tool. Uh, you can find this in some, in people like I, uh, when they when some of their security teams do talks. You're like, wow, you're talking about that, and you use my tool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and it's I'm not actually going to name anybody myself, but I I, I do know that uh, that some very large uh, companies have been uh, using it on the integration side. What are some of the use cases that someone who's new to dependency check can put in place. And, you know, when I think of this, I think like, is there an opportunity for my devs to run this themselves on their, you know, development machines? Do we run this in the build pipeline? Like where, where do you see people fitting this thing in? Oh, um, hundred percent. I want people to, you know, I want developers to run this locally. I want it integrated into the build pipeline. Uh, there are some challenges and we've been working on this with just integrating it into a build pipeline or running it because it does download the entire NVD database, which, you know, to download and process that, you know, I've seen it take 10 minutes. Uh, right now on my machine, it, it generally takes maybe two and a half, three minutes to do this because we've done some performance tweaks on that. And the NVD has changed uh, their schema, which makes it a little bit better for us. Um, and they've even got some stuff in the works that may help out even more on the performance of that. So the first time you run it, it has to pull this down. So it's going to put a, a rather large delay on this. But as long as you run it at least once every seven days to keep things up to date, it, it just has to download a very small file. If you run it multiple times within like four hours, it's not even going to do any downloads. It's going to wait because it knows that there's really probably no been no updates. Um, and so somebody who runs it locally, they're going to be like, oh, this is going to add like, you know, three minutes to my build time and and that really sucks but if you plan out your implementation correctly uh when you're when you're putting this into your pipeline you know don't just throw the data directory away or use an internal um uh, we, we support uh internal uh you know databases so you could set up an oracle or a mysql sql server or whatever we have a couple of different databases that we support um, so you can use a centralized database as opposed to using a local H2 database. And, I've, and there are even strategies around using a local H2 database within like a Jenkins uh, farm where you're not necessarily having to rebuild it every single time. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I've seen some people do incorrectly initially when they're rolling it out. And, you know, they'll throw the entire thing away. Uh, every single time, and then they're going to incur two to three minutes of build time. I've seen people actually do this in a 
you know, cloud build pipeline where I was talking to people about this and, and they're actually spinning up uh, AWS servers to do their build and they've got dependency check in there. And, and while it doesn't seem like a lot, if you're talking two to three minutes and, and you know, network bandwidth and two to three minutes of processing in your AWS build and you're throwing it away every single time, you're just incurring cost that you don't need to. So, and especially depending on how much, how much uh, you're, how many times you're building, et cetera, there are caching strategies in that you, that you can use to, to improve this. Um, that's one of the things that the longstanding issues that, that I haven't actually spent the time to fully flesh out is a lot of these tips and tricks are either in closed issues in GitHub or closed questions in GitHub, or they're in, in the documentation, but there's like two to three sentences, you know, spread out over a lot of places. I haven't yet had the time to go in and put like, here's an enterprise deployment guide or a real deployment guide. This is how you should use it. We're just at the moment that that's something that's really sorely lacking at this, at this point. But for the most part, developers, you know, bring it into your, bring it into your tool, put it in Maven, put it in Gradle, run it just to see what it finds. Cause you, if you've never used software composition analysis, you're probably going to be surprised <laughs> at, at what it, what it finds. And uh, from there, you're going to be able to evaluate, you know, do you want to go take this to your managers? Do you want to possibly put uh, the idea out there of going out and looking at some of the commercial vendors? There are, like I said, there's there's a lot of benefits to using them. They, they do really great things. I mean, there's a reason they cost what they do. Um, but for, you know, lots of technology stacks like, like Java, uh, this is doing a pretty decent job. Um, I will say the other thing that I haven't mentioned um, because of the way dependency check works, I did say it was fuzzy matching. That means it does have false positives. Um, however, if you open up the HTML report, anytime, and I've got a, like a how to read how to how to read the uh, report and and suppressing false positives, all documented on the on the documentation site. It's really simple to identify when a false positive happens because it's usually something like, "Hey, I'm using, you know, uh, net time." or some library and uh, and, the, and the CPE is like against like Linux kernel time module or something like that. And you're like, yeah, that's nothing to do with, with anything. And it's really easy. There's just a suppress button. It's a little XML file that gets generated and you can just drop that right into your build and or in, in, into how you're doing your scanning within your build. And you never have to look at that again. And so it's really easy. The, the first time you run it on a large application, you know, you might spend 30 minutes, you know, creating a couple of suppression rules, reviewing the results, you know, putting a few tickets on your backlog to do some upgrades, things like that. Um, and, you know, that's the first time you might spend a little bit more time. But after that, your next app, get, it'll go much quicker. Yeah. As you, as you look at yeah. the different deltas and stuff there. All right. Well, my final question is a statement. Well, it might end in a, in a question mark, and that is it's dependency check, not dependency checker, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. There are so many times where, you know, I'll be in the audience on a talk. And like I said, you know, from some vendors or, you know, large corporations, their security team getting up there using it. And they're like, and we have dependency checker in the build pipeline. And I just cringe. Yeah, I know. I, I, I could have come up with a better name, but I'm not very innovative with, you know, with some of my naming. And so it, I kind of called it what it did. It was a de dependency check. That That's 
it's checking the dependencies for vulnerabilities. Uh, and it just drives me up the wall when, when somebody says dependency checker. <laughs> or we're going to work to eradicate <laughs> the use of dependency checker from across our industry. Yeah. I'm taking this on as a personal challenge now. <laughs> if I hear it at a conference, I'll just stand up and, and holler or something. I don't know. Uh, Jeremy, what are your kind of final thoughts, I guess, you would leave our audience with when we're thinking about dependency check? Oh, uh, try it out. Uh, seriously, it's software composition analysis is one of the large issues facing the security industry. It's been one of the causes of some massive breaches. And if you're not doing anything in this space, this tool is free, covers a lot of technology stacks. Java, it handles Java the best, and it kind of goes down, uh, down from there. But we do have a lot of support, and it will help out identifying some of the risks that you may have and you may not know about. Jeremy, thanks for taking the time to share your origin story and the origin story of Dependency Check and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination. 